Prior to the summer, we are supposed to create a list of books to read to while away the hot days and nights. Today, I will provide a book report on a book I read called Following Jesus in a Warming World. Did I enjoy it? Should you read it? Let's find out. Welcome to Created to Reign, a production of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. The Cornwall Alliance is a ministry dedicated to helping fulfill the mandate God gave mankind in Genesis 1.28, to subdue and rule the earth in a way that enhances its fruitfulness, its beauty, and its safety for the glory of God and for the benefit of our neighbors. And remember, you can save 50% on educational resources from the Cornwall Alliance online store during October of 2023. Check out some of our best-selling books, magazines, and DVDs. No coupon is necessary, and your discount will automatically be applied at checkout. Following Jesus in a Warming World, A Christian Call to Climate Action is a book written by Kyle Mayard Shop and published in 2023 by InterVarsity Press. Mr. Mayard Shop is the current vice president of the Evangelical Environmental Network, following his stint as national organizer and spokesperson for the Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. He has been widely cited in the popular press. The book has been praised by numerous notables as evidenced by their comments on the book jacket although none of them are climate scientists. That is a bit surprising to me, as I can name several evangelical climate scientists who probably would have praised the book. Nevertheless, the notables include Bill McKibben of The End of the World Will Occur Before 1989 Due to Population Growth fame. He writes, In a world suffering from ever higher temperatures, loving one's neighbor means having to come to grips with the climate crisis. This faith journey provides both illumination and inspiration for action. Deborah Reinstra of Calvin College, although it changed its name to Calvin University four years ago, notes the book is a, quote, deeply scriptural call to advocacy for people and planet as both moral necessity and spiritual discipline, unquote. Several others, notably Christian Kobe Dumez, author of Jesus and John Wayne, how Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation, Jonathan Moo of Whitworth University, and Richard Mao of Calvin University write that the book is to be commended for Mayard Schaap's use of stories, theological, political, historical, and deeply personal, to demonstrate how climate change threatens our survival on earth and how we, as Christians, are charged to be leaders in the fight to save us from ourselves. Lytical. I had not seen that word before. I looked it up in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, and it isn't there. Definitions.net indicates it is thinking both literally and logically at the same time. Ah, I see what he did there. The Urban Dictionary defines it as, quote, to be fluent in literacy or emotion. Unquote. I have a feeling that emotion will play a big role in this book. Oh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. If you have listened to our podcast before, 
you will note that Cal and I have both provided podcasts on two similar projects that have recently been released. We jointly did a five-part podcast on the National Association of Evangelicals release in 2022 of Loving the Least of These, Addressing a Changing Environment. And I provided a podcast on Pope Francis' apostolic exhortation, Laudate Deum, which was released in October of 2023. As it turns out, there is much overlap with these three writings. Although being of book length, following Jesus is much more extensive. Thus, it may be possible that an anonymous Q source exists that provides the common background for all three documents. Oops, maybe I shouldn't use the letter Q as it has bad connotations these days with respect to conservative activities. But I digress. The introduction to the book begins with Mr. Mayard Schaap's personal transition from a traditional Christian to a Christian environmentalist. And as he notes that the book, quote, is for every Christian who has looked out at a world ravaged by the impacts of climate change, at the inability of their seemingly oblivious faith community to do or say anything about it, and quietly wondered if they're losing their mind. The need for the church to wake up and act is urgent, unquote. When his brother returned from a Christian camp to proclaim he was now a vegetarian, Mr. Mayard Schaap was led to search his life and found that climate change was something on which the church provided only silence. The introduction argues that we should pay attention to the scientific consensus behind climate change, to the 97% of scientists that agree with him, of course, to the IPCC reports, and in particular to the results of COP24 in Paris. He concludes that climate change, quote, is nothing less than the moral challenge of our time, unquote. Chapter one focuses on coal and the greatest commandment. It discusses the horrors of coal mining in West Virginia, although it fails to make the parallel with the mining of rare earth minerals needed to convert to a neither clean nor green economy. He then cites James 2.17, and that faith is dead, where Christians see the suffering of our neighbors, but do nothing. In his view, it is an abrogation of the greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, to stand idly by while climate change ravages the planet. Chapter 2 addresses how we got here. Mr. Mayor Chap argues that protecting and preserving creation is a fundamental part of loving God and neighbor. He tells stories that has formed us as Christians. Some are good, but some are bad. They include issues like racism, sexism, LBGTQ plus bigotry, and yes, a bias against climate change destruction. He laments the actions and beliefs that have kept us from doing what God has commanded us to do. That is, to address climate change as the moral challenge of our time. These are the excesses that have plagued the church. Voting Republican, a belief that we are living in the end times so we don't need to worry about this earth, and an unholy marriage between the church, big tobacco, and climate disinformation. He asks the question, why have so many United States Christians been absent from climate change action for the last 40 years? 
He then goes on to answer it. Because a sociocultural story of misinformation and intentional obfuscation that has mapped out the basic contours of reality and defined the bright red line between truth and lies has told U.S. Christians that any truth that may exist about climate change is culturally unknowable. Mr. Mayor Chap then argues that these lies keep us from the life or death consequences for millions of people around the world on the front lines of climate change. He decries the conservative side of the political spectrum by quoting Billy Graham, quote, it would disturb me if there was a wedding between the religious fundamentalists and the religious right. The hard right has no interest in religion except to manipulate it, unquote. Mr. Mayor Schaap's quintessential example is, well, Donald Trump, of course. No surprise there. He argues that Christians voted for Trump in 2016 and 2020 simply because he was a Republican, even though Mr. Mayor Schaap labels Trump as an immoral nihilist. He gives no critical reasons as to why Christians may have rejected Hillary Clinton or Joseph Biden Jr. or chose Donald Trump despite his flaws, over the opposition candidates. The false narrative of all Christians vote Republican is the only reason he can give. Chapter 3 focuses on how Christians must recover the big story of God's saving grace. According to Mr. Mayor Chap, our big story must be how we, as Christians, are going to save God's creation from the destruction of climate change that we have invoked upon our planet. The crux of the chapter is that God created a good world and entrusts Christians to preserve it. By not doing all we can to save the planet from climate change, we are denying one of the fundamental mandates from God. Mr. Mayor Chap argues that in Hebrew, we are soil people. Adam comes from the Hebrew Adamah, and thus we are bound to the rest of creation as humans in the midst of a created world. Unfortunately, he misses the importance of humans laid out in Genesis 1, and he reinterprets Genesis 2.15 as, quote, the Lord God took the soil man and placed him in the garden to serve and protect it, unquote. Mr. Mayor Chap assumes the garden is now the entire planet. Moreover, he argues we should rule over creation as Christ rules in Philippians 2, Verses 6 to 8, when Mr. Mayard Schapp writes, Jesus does not rule through dominance, extraction, or exploitation, but through humble service, sacrifice, and by seeking the good of that which is ruled. He rules through service. This chapter reads to me as if Christ came to save all of creation. Mr. Mayard Schapp writes, What is God trying to tell us today? At the very least, it holds out to us the possibility that while the saving work of Jesus on the cross is certainly meant for humans, God very well might have much more than only humans in God's saving sights. Mr. Mayor Chap also writes, by living like we believe the end of the big story is that God has eternal plans for the created world, we are being faithful. I don't see how he justifies this in light of Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
Chapter four lays out the premise that climate action is God's good news. Mr. Mayor Chap writes, Evangelon of a world flipped right side up would be particularly good news for those pressed to the bottom by climate change's cruel and unequal calculus. Jesus seems to think so. This is because Jesus began his ministry focusing on the poor and the oppressed. Mr. Mayor Chap argues that focusing on addressing climate change changes lives now, which is the key to Jesus' ministry. Jesus healed the sick, raised the dead, cleansed the lepers, fed the 5,000. And so we, like Christ, must protect the planet because that is the parallel to what Christ did. Why? Climate change is causing increases in all kinds of diseases and cancers. It is causing people to die. It is causing farmers to lose their livelihoods. It is causing mass starvation. Thus, addressing the evils of climate change is exactly parallel with what Jesus did when he was here in bodily form. Chapter 5 argues for being pro-life in the age of climate chaos. Mr. Mayor Chap tells two stories. One of a nun in Kenya who laments variability in rainfall affects the lives of those in Kenya, with the implication that stopping climate change would cause the rainfall in every year to be just the right amount the crops and farmers need. The second story argues that pro-life is much more than abortion. He writes, quote, there are myriad policy issues that affect people's ability to experience abundant life, access to safe and affordable housing, criminal justice reform, food sovereignty, access to public health care, police reform, racial justice, and so many more. And of course, underlying all these issues is access to a healthy environment and a stable climate, unquote. The chapter moves on to the trite message that climate change affects some people more than it affects others. Only wealthy, industrialized countries of the West persist in rejecting and denying the scientific facts. By far, the United States is the bastion of this denial because we are wealthy and industrialized, and because we are located in the middle latitudes. He lists numerous anecdotes of one-off events, anthrax outbreaks, and the patented lines of stronger and wetter hurricanes, for example. Moreover, the United States acquired all this wealth through the lucrative transatlantic slave trade. Mr. Mayor Schapp decries the unequal wealth distribution of the United States, advocating apparently for a more socialist society. He believes our current condition is simply a continued manifestation of white supremacy and racism. He remarks that the interstate highway system intentionally bisected black neighborhoods with the goal of polluting these neighborhoods with tailpipe exhaust. Mr. Mayor Chap concludes with, quote, It is high time that those of us who consider ourselves on the side of life, wholeness, and full flourishing to drastically expand our understanding of what it means to be pro-life. For too long, a relatively small group of powerful Christian leaders and their political allies have been allowed to hold hostage the moral imagination of millions of Christians. They've been allowed to circumscribe the definition of pro-life mostly to mean pro-birth, and they have blessed a very narrow set of public actions that can be pursued in its name. 
unquote. He then itemizes these public actions. Donate to and volunteer at crisis pregnancy centers, participate in the annual March for Life, and, most importantly of all, vote Republican. Before moving on, there's an odd passage I wish to explore. In Chapter 5, Mr. Mayor Schapp makes one of his few comments regarding the science. He writes, In almost every country on Earth, the scientific findings of anthropogenic global warming are accepted as the laws of gravity or germ theory. Gravity and germ theory? We have known for a long time that our model of gravity works for most of the scales we encounter, but it fails at the subatomic scale and at the interstellar scale. We now are beginning to realize that gravity might not be a force at all. Rather, it is a warping of space-time that causes objects to be attracted to each other. Germ theory is associated with the story of Ignaz Semmelweis and how his research was rejected until it was confirmed posthumously by Louis Pasteur and Joseph Lister. Using these two examples to argue in favor for the consensus theory of global warming shows a complete lack of scientific knowledge. They instead show how accepted science has been wrong in the past and how other ideas should be investigated, and that the consensus view should always be critically examined. Chapter 6 argues that the climate change story can change the world. He tells the story of Robert and his family who lived in New Orleans and attempted to flee Hurricane Katrina. Robert's frail and aging mother and his three-year-old granddaughter perished. It is a terrible tale of effort and despair that ended tragically. But it didn't have to be that way if we just had prevented climate change. The chapter is filled with other stories of how weather variability, often erroneously ascribed to climate change, affected people's lives. He makes some odd statements such as, the truth is the science is so settled and so readily accessible. And instead of hard data, we do best when we focus on the emotions of climate change, sharing how climate change makes us feel and how it makes us feel to be doing something about it. And Al Gore knows the science better than almost anyone on the face of the earth. Sorry, I knew I couldn't read that with a straight face. But he concludes that Mr. Gore cannot reach people because of polarization and hyperpartisanship. That is why storytelling about your feelings regarding climate change, rather than relying on the facts, is so useful. Mr. Mayor Schapp then gives instructions on how to tell your climate change story. You must include that 97% of scientists agree that climate change is an existential threat. You must argue that weirder weather is occurring now, which cannot be explained. And then cite pastors who have signed on to address climate change as a charge for all Christians. This, rather than the science, is more likely to bring climate change unbelievers around to his way of thinking. In the Bible, he says the woman ran to Peter's house to tell him the tomb was empty. We, too, can change the world if we run to today's Peter to tell him the good news that we can solve climate change. Chapter 7 outlines that God's pleasure is our joy. Joy, he then defines, 
as overcoming the ravages of climate change. Aligning our lives with our Christian values without climate change abatement leaves us without joy. Mr. Mayor Chap believes that prayer, worship, and meditation on Scripture might be on a par with taking shorter showers or reducing meat intake to protect the earth. But in particular, two passages stood out to me. Quote, according to the Gospels and Acts, the good news we are called to share is meant for the entire creation, unquote. And the second is, quote, the cultivation of ecological virtue through simple Quotidian acts practiced over and over has the power not only to bring down the global temperature, but also to form us to be more faithful heralds of the good news of Jesus Christ, unquote. The final chapter, chapter eight, is a call for legislation and activism. According to Mr. Mayard Schapp, we must limit warming to the magical 1.5 degrees Celsius for reasons that once again are never stated. He calls for both a draconian national response as well as individual personal sacrifice. He argues that humanity's quest for survival, comfort, and progress has brought about a fossil fuel-based industrial society, which has induced an out-of-control change in our climate. The evils of climate change are legion. As he writes, authoritarianism is on the rise around the globe, and in the United States, we are seeing increasing illiberalism. The shattering of democratic norms, emboldened attempts to restrict voting access, and a government that seems less responsive than ever to the will of the people. This is then followed by a call for Christian political activism, and although it isn't specifically stated, the argument is to work with the socialist side of the political spectrum, especially given his criticisms of the Republicans he outlined earlier. He urges the reader to call their congresspersons. Specific numbers to call and how to conduct the call are given, and the text goes so far as to provide a script that one could read over the phone. Mr. Mayor Schapp asserts that our goal should be for a 100% clean, renewable energy future. Activists must write about change through op-eds and letters to the editor in their local newspapers, participate in marches and demonstrations, and use social media and digital activism to get the message across. And voting in all elections is essential. I guess voting both early and often goes without saying. So what do I think of the book? I already have provided some of my comments, but overall, I came away with a much different view than I initially thought I would have. At first glance, I anticipated that this book was simply mirror the National Association of Evangelicals Loving the Least of These, Addressing a Changing Environment, or Pope Francis's apostolic exhortation, Laudate Deo. And ultimately it does, as there is much overlap both in goals, scope, and content in all three. But of the three, this book is different, and not in a good way. Loving the Least of These and Laudate Deum both attempt to make a scientific case for human-induced climate change. Their arguments are quite predictable. For example, conflating weather with climate, attributing rare events to human activities, or simply stating fallacies and lies as facts. This book, however, makes little attempt to convince the reader that humans are responsible for climate change. 
that humans are destroying our planet is taken as a simple fact. But surprisingly, the book argues that the case should not be made by relying on the facts, rather on an appeal to feelings and emotions. Tell stories, make them personal, but keep science out of it. That, in his view, is the key to winning hearts and minds. The reader will find it hard not to shed a tear for Robert and his family from New Orleans. Unable to flee the storm and clinging to the roof of his home, he loses his elderly mother and his young three-year-old granddaughter. But there is no logic in believing that the draconian results of climate change abatement would have any effect on the storm or have changed the outcome for Robert and his family. Other stories have the same impact. You are left feeling sorry for the people involved, but the link between the event and climate change is less than tenuous. And I think this is entirely intentional. The climate alarmists have now realized that their scientific arguments are not winning. Many people are not convinced and not swayed by facts. In fact, climate alarmists tend to lose most of the debates when the facts are presented. So if you cannot win with the facts, then you must appeal to people's emotions. The key phrase comes in chapter six. Instead of hard data, we do best when we focus on the emotions of climate change, sharing how climate change makes us feel and how it makes us feel to be doing something about it. That sums up for me just about the entire book. And now for my biggest criticism. Others might disagree, and I respect their opinion. But I came away with a feeling after reading this book that I did not get after reading either Loving the Least of These or Laudate Deum. It wasn't just that I thought Mr. Mayor Schaap and I had a difference of opinion. Too many times I felt that what I had just read was sacrilegious. Comments that imply our good news is that we can solve climate change rather than Christ died for our sins that prayer, worship, and meditation on scripture might somehow be equated with taking shorter showers or reducing meat intake to protect the earth, and similar equalities or substitutes with the actual word of God seem to me to be antithetical to the gospel. I don't take the word of God lightly, and any comparison of climate change activism to spreading the gospel of Christ that places climate change at an equal or higher footing is, in my view, sacrilegious. Well, that is my take on this book. If you choose to read it, let me know what you thought of it. Thank you for listening to Created to Reign. Until next time, I am David Arley Gates, and may God richly bless you. 